0: The hardest thing is getting them to take ownership, right? Like, that's the hardest part about teaching, is getting students to take ownership of their learning and actually caring about what they're learning about. You know, having that intrinsic motivation is something that is is a difficult piece. You can make your parents happy, but you should also be making
1: yourself happy and proud. Here we are. My name is Cam, and this is Real Learning, a podcast by The Juice co-hosted today with Brendan Kells, the VP of Education for the Juice. And today we're lucky enough to have Mr. John Cleland, teacher from Royal Palm Beach High School, out here on the podcast. So John, you've been juicing the juice for a while and uh, we were just talking, you teach uh, ELA, but actually it's pretty cool the um, nuance of the classes you teach. So I think a good way to start this off would be just kind of, how did you hear about the juice and Why did you feel like it would make sense to incorporate that into the classes you teach? And then from there, I think we can talk more deeply about exactly, you know, those awesome nuances of what those classes are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I actually got an email. Uh, sometimes we get some spam emails in the district, and I was kind of worried that it was a spam email at first. Um, it said something about a current event resource. And in the class that I teach, current events are pretty heavily important. So uh, I thought to myself, OK, fine, I'll, I'll submit a survey. Um, and I got somebody emailed me back and they said, hey, you, know, you want to kind of help me beta test run this? And I said, sure. And I, I looked through it. And it showed me the, the very, like the preliminary before Juice even started going into classrooms. Um, and I was instantly hooked because it reminded me very much of there's a similar uh, resource that's a little bit more fully fledged um, in terms of they produce magazines and larger content in that aspect um, is Upfront Magazine. And so it reminded me exactly of that, but in bite size, really like uh, smaller, but you know fun learning segments students attention span I mean my attention span is not that that large and so having something that's like short you can read it in a few minutes you can discuss it and it has larger implications on both ethical discussions English discussions all these different applications so yeah that was a big part of it for me was I got very lucky by finding an email uh, that I thought was maybe spam and then it turned out to be something a lot better
1: That's awesome. So, and one of the classes you teach, you mentioned it's, it's this ace English course for ninth graders. And then you want to kind of take me through um, that, you know, I, I haven't heard of teachers getting to teach those interesting subjects like that necessarily. So ACE um, is a Cambridge
0: program from obviously England. Um, It is their international, it's advanced international something, something. Um, But basically the concept is they are these, uh, they're like in the UK, the A-levels are their examinations that they take to essentially put them towards college. And so we've kind of adapted them into our own country uh, for similarly to like AP. Um, And so in ACE general papers, we really really focus it reminds me a lot of like political science um so it's a lot of discussion it's a lot of let's look at current events let's look at history let's look at literature and let's see kind of what um, we can glean from all of that whether it's um, ethical lessons whether it's uh, you know, history, the context of, of a certain piece of literature, anything like that, it varies pretty widely. The basic format is they have uh, one hour and fifteen minutes to write. They, this is their two. They have two exams. Um, they have one hour and fifteen minutes to write one essay based on a very broad, open-ended question. And then they have a reading comprehension portion as well, where they have some passages, they read, they respond to critical thinking, rational, logical thinking questions. So we do a lot of like ethos, pathos, logos, rhetoric and things like that. Um, and that's the basic format of the class. It's it's really, really fun. It, like it reminds me of my college classes. And that's why I think I like it the most is because it's not your standard high school English class. And I get to do so much more than just Let's read Romeo and Juliet. Um, and that's, you know, that's why I love it so much. And that's why it's one of my favorite classes to teach or one of my favorite classes I've ever taught. I
2: feel very similarly to you in that the courses that I loved to teach were the ones in which the, I had a lot of freedom over the curriculum because the what students are bringing to the table uh, or what they get most excited and engaged in, in my experience, is when they're learning is very clearly not happening in these silos that we have built for subject matter right and you're t- an english teacher but you're covering everything like it just yeah. it, it you're you're sort of following where the pathway goes from current events as to what do we need to engage in here and there's english lessons to pull from those while simultaneously recognizing that you're learning something else as well that's going on in there
1: it definitely it helps me feel optimistic to hear that there, there are courses like this. Like when I think back to my public school education, 90% of my classes was like, people just showed up and tuned out. Given, given being a teacher in this situation, like what insights do you have about what really can spark curiosity in students and how stu- teachers can get students to you know, really want to learn?
0: Well so the like the the hardest thing is getting them to take ownership, right? Like that's the hardest part about teaching is getting students to take ownership of their learning and actually caring about what they're learning about, right? Just like you said. You know, having that intrinsic motivation is something that is is a difficult piece because it's something that I even practice with my own son, right? I tell him, "Yeah, I'm proud of you, but I also want you to be proud of yourself." Right? Like and that's kind of that that inner motivation that I try to drive within my classroom as well. I say, "Listen, you can make your parents happy, but you should also be making yourself happy and proud." And so we a lot of like practice with autonomy um in terms of i allow them to choose a lot of the stuff that we do so for example um i usually will start off the year by doing a uh like a learning survey and they can tell me what subject areas they're really interested in and then they have to like narrow it down so if they say science they can't just be like oh i really like science so, okay science is great but science is a massive area do you like biology do you like physics do you like chemistry do you want to learn more about nanoscience do you want to learn about more about like embryos and stem cells right and so i let them kind of filter a little bit of that learning and then once we get um our resources like upfront or the juice um i let them drive so i'll say hey here are five articles. Here are five topics that we can discuss. You guys can vote, and we'll pick, and we'll we'll choose. And so I I run my classroom very similarly to, you know, a, a an ancient form of democracy in the sense that like I let them choose a lot of what we do because to me it doesn't matter. To me, it's all interesting. To me, I'm I'm having a blast either way. So I want them to care more about it. And when they care more about it, like if we do a debate they get to pick the debate, right? Like we don't just have one choice in life, we have lots of choices and lots of of options. And so I try to model my class after both like real life and autonomy, like giving them a chance to kind of speak their mind and be open and choose what they wanna learn, I think is a big part of
2: getting them to buy in. One of the, I think, great hurdles and obstacles I know I faced in the high school that I taught at was a vast range of reading skills when entering my classroom. And it becomes like the stumbling block to discussions that you want to have, to coursework that you want to engage in, and so on. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about if that's something that you've experienced as well and about what I experienced were also the difficulties in finding text that would be common enough for my classroom to engage in and then... Everybody is at least equipped
0: with the same baseline. There's definitely going to be moments in my class where, because it is a higher-level class, where there will be certain texts that are a little bit more challenging, a little bit more difficult for certain students. Um, because I, I mean, I work I work at a Title One school, um, and so as as a Title One school, I have students who are are widely ranged. I have students. Um, just to give you a spectrum, we uh, in Florida, we operate on a one to five FSA scale, right? Like they, like one being the lowest, five being the highest. Um, And so I'll have kids in my class who are maybe a level two, maybe a level three, and then I'll have some fours and some fives. Right. And there uh, is a good mixture. And so and is th- this is
2: based off of Florida's standardized test scores. Yeah. Got it. Okay.
0: And so it's like, while while They, definitely indicates some level of comprehension and some level of acknowledgement in in the English world, it's not always the best indicator. So what I try to do is I try to find, um, and this is going to lead me on a tangent of how I hate the Lexile system, um, is I try to find something that is of complex, uh, complex in nature, complex in content, but is lower in Lexile. So, lower in lexile because lexile is really, really stupid. I don't know if you guys know what lexile or how lexiles work, but basically, right? The idea is uh, it's really it's literally just the words on the page. That's the like the vocabulary essentially in the book. and right? in in, in reading, vocabulary is about eighty percent of reading. If you can't read the words, you can't understand what's happening. And so I'll try to find things that are, complex in nature, but lower in lexile. So one of my favorite books that I taught um, was Night by Elie Wiesel. Um, Holocaust story, it's a memoir, and but it's so complex in nature because it literally is talking about one of the most horrific incidents in our our world's history um, on a very, very big scale. And so while it's it's lower in challenging vocabulary, it's, it's way more complex for them to actually think and have discussions about the same thing. I, I also do a lot of vocabulary in my classroom. Regardless, I do both um, domain and academic uh, domain specific and academic vocabulary. So I'll do vocabulary like um, metaphor and simile and, and figurative language and things like that. But then I'll just give them academic vocabulary. So words uh, like malign and omen and all these like other like slightly above where they're at and i'll kind of keep pushing them and so for me as i said i've seen a lot of challenges i mean i had <laughs> my first year in i had a bottom 25 percent uh like lower 25 percent so ones all ones and twos and i had kids who were 15 16 years old couldn't smell the word friend someone somewhere messed up rapidly and like let this kid down i work with a lot of the ones that i see um A lot of the ones that I see who are struggling with basic comprehension of vocabulary and things like that, I'll do like when I split them off into groups, I'll go work with them individually. I also will pair students by skills and strengths, right? So this student might be really good at reading comprehension, but this student is a really good like critical thinker, even though that student's comprehension is really low, they still have the ability to think critically. They just... Don't understand what's on the page, and so I'll start putting those two kids together. And so that one one kid will say, "Okay, well, here's what's happening." The other kid, "Oh my God, I, you know, that that's a really crazy thing. What if, you know, this character really does feel this way, or, or really does care about, you know, this other character?" And so that's kind of how I try to approach it.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, thank you for that because like hearing you speak of it reminded me of so many things. I, one thing that it conjured in in the description of. Um, what we you're saying is a sort of challenging in, con- in the context, right, um, is how few of those texts exist. Yeah. And I, I remember a lecture that a professor was giving about um, teaching literacy to adolescents. Uh, it was couched in the idea of the achievement gap, but truthfully, it wasn't really about race. It was about um, just teaching adolescent boys in particular, but really adolescents how to read mm-hmm. when they've matured to a particular level by high school in which their reading level is not reflective of what their interests are. And so he described it as an out-of-school literacy overload in the themes and things that they're engaging with, but an in-school literacy underload in that like, you're reading at a fifth grade level, here's the text that is now appropriate for you because it was written for fifth graders. But the things that you would engage with a fifth grader on are not the things that you would engage a 10th grader on. So finding that text, so challenging to do. Knight is a great example of being able to do that so that it doesn't feel like you're patronizing a young person who knows when that's happening and is completely checked out, right? And it's a such a challenging task to what he described as turn up the volume. Like what you need to do is not dumb it down. You need to turn up the volume on the text. You need to find that entry point of, the, of, of whatever it is. But it's part of what also drew me to the juice is that we're saying like, we're gonna tell this story and we're going to do it, it at four different reading levels because yeah. the content of saying who should be interested in politics is an assumption I'm not willing to make. Um, and 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 one that I think is really detrimental to say yeah. that this isn't a conversation for younger, a younger audience and or someone who's reading at a younger audience level. I want to jump over to the side here and ask a similar but different
1: uh, topic of question and this is relating to, to emotional intelligence, EQ. How is it even possible for educators in a classroom setting to help students wor- build those skills, those soft skills, specifically uh, empathy, for example?
0: It's funny that you say that because like uh, empathy is the thing that I focus on the most um, because I think empathy is the thing that is the hardest for a lot of students to understand, right? Like uh, there's a war happening in, in Peru, why do I care? I don't live in Peru, you know, and so having them getting them to understand empathy is such a like a, a difficult challenge. And so this past year was really interesting that we we shifted a lot of focus into SEL, social uh, emotional learning activities, um, because we weren't really doing a whole lot of it before. Like we were doing it on a on a very broad level but it became clear to us as we got into as we dealt with the pandemic and as we dealt with the isolation that it was really important that we address mental health on a larger scale both socially and emotionally and so getting them to understand you know just a simple concept of caring about what's what's happening to other people. Just for the sheer fact that you wouldn't want it to happen to yourself as a simple way of, of expressing empathy. Um, and so we did a, a few activities at the very beginning of the year. And then every time we're reading a, a new text or we're looking at a current event, we kind of focus on the um, the pathos of it. Um, and we, we talk about, you know, what is the emotional appeal? How do you think these people are feeling? Why do you think they want you to feel this way? Um, and we look at, you know, how we would feel about those things. A lot of my questions, a lot of my discussion questions are, you know, what are your thoughts? How do you feel about this? Um, and getting them to be comfortable, one, expressing emotions um, in a classroom setting, and then also not only expressing them, but understanding other people's emotions, I think is the biggest hurdle. And it's something that I used you, to you practice with, with kids who are, 15 to 18 years old, right? They still have, I mean, I I practice it with my son who's five, but you know, I still have to teach it to to 15 year olds. Cause I've had students where we've read stuff uh, about issues going on worldwide internationally and they'll say well but we're in the us why should we care about those issues and i'm like well because those people are being displaced from their homes uh you look at syria you look at israel and palestine and you've got people who are being displaced constantly because of things that have nothing to do with them and i'm like how would you feel if your if your entire family had to pack up all of your things and leave because it was no longer safe for you? you didn't have a choice for education you didn't have a choice for any of these things and then they start to say, well that, that would kind of suck i don't I don't think I'd want to move um and they start to like put it into perspective and they start to realize I mean not that many people realize there's a large part uh, portion of the population of our of our planet that doesn't have electricity um and You put that into context. Okay. No electricity. That means no computer. That means no cell phone. That means no lights. That means no TV. That means no Netflix. And then you say, oh, no Netflix. And they freak out. They're like, wait, I can't have Netflix. And I said, yeah. So imagine being that person for a second. They're like, well, that they must be pretty upset. I'm like, yeah, they're pretty upset. I mean, they don't know always what they're missing, but yeah, they're probably not feeling too great. So yeah, quantifying it is definitely difficult. But it's it's yeah, and that's how you kind of lose you lose
1: focus sometimes on it. There's a lot of trends in education, whether that's social emotional learning, inquiry based learning. I know there's project based learning. Things uh, are changing amidst all this. I feel I feel like you're definitely someone aware of this who uh, more or less is staying at that cutting edge, so to speak. What advice from from your position could you offer to other teachers? Well,
0: so. Uh, most teachers I would assume are required to do professional development during the summer and in the beginning of school year. And so I would say the biggest piece of advice I can give is find professional development that's worth it. Because you could be sitting there for an hour and gain next to nothing from that when you sh- when you could have been in another workshop learning more about how to develop uh, relationships with students. I mean, more than anything, that is the biggest centerpiece. That is what I do. I spend so much time building relationships with students because once you can get them to buy in they will do whatever they will work as hard as they possibly can for you um and so finding professional development about building relationships everything else kind of comes after that one of the things that i do fairly consistently is i have the students write me a letter it's the first assignment that they do they write me a letter at the beginning of the year um basically detailing you know their their life who they are um on a much broader scale than just hey, what kind of music do you like? And what kind of movies are you a fan of? I usually will write them a letter back. Um, and knowing that, that that letter is coming from me is something that I think also builds that relationship. Finding that common ground saying, hey, I, I appreciate the letter that you gave to me and referencing that letter, like referencing things in that letter showing, because like, what? okay, sorry. I know I'm going off on like 17 different tangents, but I had one student who, um, who literally wrote in her letter She's like, she put it in, she put it in parentheses. And she's like, if you read this, tell me the word orange. um Like, like put things in there to test, to see if I was, because they will test you so frequently. And the next time I saw her, I said, hey, Kaya, orange. And she's like, oh my God, you actually read the, I'm like, yes, I read the letter. I told you I would. I am a man of my word. I, I do this. And so, you know, referencing those things, doing those little things are, are, the most important to me. And so that's, those are the biggest pieces of advice I could give.
1: The student teacher relationship in any discipline, it's sacred to hear the way you approach that. It it makes me feel so optimistic. Any teachers out there listening, thank you for all that you do. This has been awesome. This podcast is called Real Learning. Definitely won't be the last time you hear John Cleland on it. Thanks again, John and Brendan. Always a pleasure to have you here as well.
0: Thank you guys so much. It was wonderful meeting you, Brendan. Thank you so much, Cam.
2: Likewise, John. Take care.